Hi everyone, welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop, and hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast this week is Shanak Roy, founder of Yellowdig. When we sit in a classroom and try to learn, it's not just the lecture from the professor, but it's also the interaction that we're having. That's where the real learning happens, right? I mean, even if I listen to the best professor in the world, doesn't mean I'm going to be smart like him or her. It's only when I try to apply that knowledge by discussing with people like me or go back to work and try to connect with something I learned before and those connectivities where learning truly happens. And I think that's where technology has a huge role to play. This is Shanak. He's a tech entrepreneur on a mission. The first decade of his career, he spent advising global companies on technology, strategy, and growth. In 2014, he knew he wanted to start a company that mattered. As he looked back on his own academic days as an undergrad at IIT Bombay and postgrad at MIT, he realized that he learned as much from his peers as he did from his brilliant professors. Some of the bonds he created with his peers lasted well beyond those formative years and morphed into long-life friendships. As Facebook and other social media technologies took over the social connectivity scene, he saw an opportunity to leverage this idea of social sharing through technology, specifically in the area of sharing academic ideas and knowledge. And this became the big idea behind Yellowdig. The platform was built on three main pedagogical principles, agency, mastery, and connectedness. Its mission, to make classroom learning more joyful, active, and engaging. And this inspired me. And hence, I invited Shanak to my podcast. We explore what's broken in the way we deliver education. Shanak shares his vision about how education can be more fun and impactful. He elaborates on the big lessons learned from making his idea a reality and gaining predictable traction in a tough market. He shares his secret on how to avoid failure and create a solution that uses not only like, but love. And by listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, how to create predictable traction by leveraging existing technology investments and amplifying their value. Secondly, the framework Shanak is using to grow fast but mitigate the critical risk. Thirdly, what he learned from having to rebuild his entire stack and how it helped them to build a viable company. And fourthly, what sales and pricing strategies work best if you aim to create momentum in traditionally conservative industries. Well, hi, Shonak. Thank you for making the time available today and your busy schedule to be a guest on the podcast. Thank you for the invitation, Tom. It's always a pleasure. I pick my candidates where I see value. And when I saw kind of the story behind Yellow Dick, your company, I thought it was it fitted really well with the purpose of the podcast. So hence, we here we are. 
And we're going to talk about that in a minute, but you listened to a couple of podcasts already. And the first question that I typically like to ask is, if you'd have to describe yourself as a CEO or as an entrepreneur, what words characterize you? Well, you know, I like to work on problems that excite me. And at least that is how I started my current company, which I've been running for the last seven years. I did have some failed attempts of being an entrepreneur back in the past, but I think those were also the kind of problems that attracted me and I wanted to solve them. That's a very good approach to start a business by solving uh, meaningful problems. Yeah, I would just want to add something though, is it's a great way to start a company because I think what has helped me is that to kind of be on mission for a long time because I, the problem is close to me and I really want to see it solved and hopefully I can or the company can. But you know, it's also a recipe for getting into trouble because sometimes even if you solve a problem, doesn't mean you can build a business. So that's something I do keep in mind and you know, we can glad to get into as well you know, as we go down this conversation. For sure. Yeah, exactly. Because that is a super important one. Sometimes people say, okay, follow your passion. But if your passion is about something that no one wants to, that is it may be solving a problem, but no one wants to pay for it, like the business is going to be nowhere. That's, of course, where the magic happens. In the intersection of that. So like, I think it's a nice segue to kind of start talking about your company. What was the problem that you saw that you believed required a completely new approach? Hence, you were stepping up and saying, we're going to solve it. I'm going to be on the mission to solve it. Yeah. So, you know, back in 2015, when I launched Yellowdig, the problem that I saw was the state of education. You know, of course, I've been through the university system and kind of have been various corporate training programs and things like that. But I noticed that, you know, a theme is that they're never really engaging. You know, if you ask somebody that, hey, you're being sent to a program, let's say you work in a company and say you're being sent for a couple of days, what people get excited about is, okay, I'm going to travel there, I'm going to meet a bunch of people, but what I'm really going to learn, is that going to be really helpful for me? Can I really connect it with my job? Or, you know, when I was sitting in those classrooms, when I had my master's program in MIT, I went to a very good school, but I always felt that, you know, the time that we spend in learning is always felt like wastage to a large extent, right? I was sitting in the back of the classroom and listening to a lecture for a long time. That is something that bothered me at the same time, you know, back in 2015, if you remember like the social platforms like Facebook, LinkedIn, all these things were coming up and I could see what technology can do, like how it can connect people from anywhere and it can make it engaging. It could be asynchronous so that you don't even have to be in the same class or same place. And it could be an incredibly learning tool. You know, when I want to learn things, I always reach out to people and I want to get feedback from them saying that, hey, this is what I'm thinking, or this is my idea. Tell me, what do you think, right? So, but that was not being used in any sort of learning environment. So kind of, I started connecting those dots, like, okay, how can I solve this problem of engagement, making the learning a lot more fun in some sense, but using technology? That was the start of Yellow Lake. Yeah, I I can completely see that. Next thing is, of course, seeing that it's not engaging. What is the opportunity if the world flips and they embrace the Yellow Dick platform? What do you believe are the things that we're going to see that are relatively different from what they are today? It's a great question. You know, if you think about education, and let's take an example of a university, right? So let's say everybody wants to send their kids or want to go to a really good university. But there are a lot of frictions to go there, right? Firstly, you have to get into it, get accepted. Second is that you have to actually move to that location. 
Third is that it's going to be incredibly expensive, right? You leave your job, you kind of, you know, travel, commute, be in a classroom. You know, if you're working, then you go to the evening classes. And then, you know, think about all the costs of actually doing that. And then when you actually being in a school or a classroom, then you are basically only learning in that time frame, which is like a two or three hours a week where you're interacting with instructors. So there are a lot of costs, which is why education is so expensive. Right. If you think about you want to do a master's program, it is incredibly expensive, not just the tuition of the program, but all the other costs that are associated around being in the classroom and taking that. Technology, on the other hand, is the ultimate kind of thing that can break through all these walls and you know really make it equitable, where you can listen to the best professor out of MIT or Harvard or whichever school from anywhere in the world, doesn't matter where you are. And you can interact with your classmates from anywhere in the world, right? I mean, we already have those technologies in place. So I think the world that I think that is we are going towards is the world where the model is flipped, where doesn't matter where you are based, doesn't matter what's your affordability in terms of affording a good quality education or what's your interest. You should be able to get to the right school with the right program, with the right professor, with the right students at any time around your work, around your personal schedule. So that's kind of what I see. That's kind of, we are kind of slowly marching towards and there's a whole bunch of things happening in that area and we are playing a small piece of that, I would say. Good. I like the model. And there's also, yeah, I mean, is it possible to do the curriculum faster? Where do you see the quality go up in terms of how you consume it and how and what you learn from it? Yeah, so you, know, it, you can do it faster and you can also have a higher quality experience as you're going through. So one of the biggest challenges of quality when it comes to quality is that, you know, people go to colleges, schools, or go to classes because of the instructor or the professor or the teacher, right? Whoever is teaching you. So that's very important. But there is a lot of cost to access a person, right? Because you have to travel and be there, right? So just if you can make it available at a much more broader scale, I mean, if you think about these MOOCs platforms like edX and Coursera and others have actually taken those content from these top universities or even companies that made it available to millions of learners, right? So right away, you have greater access to the highest quality content. But content is not the only thing though, right? I mean, when we sit in a classroom and try to learn, it's not just the lecture from the professor, but it's also the interaction that we're having. That's where the real learning happens, right? I mean, even if I listen to the best professor in the world, doesn't mean I'm going to be smart like him or her. It's only when I try to apply that knowledge by discussing with people like me or go back to work and try to connect with something I learned before. And those connectivities where learning truly happens. And I think that's where technology has a huge role to play. And this is where Yellowdig plays a role. So Yellowdig, very briefly, is a peer-to-peer learning platform where the professor, the students, the content lives together so that you're always learning in context around a community and never just on your own. Yeah, I mean... I'm a big fan of that type of approach, and it happens. I don't see it happening enough. So glad Yellow Dig is there. I've experienced this myself with the work that Seth Godin has been doing around the Kimbo. Not sure whether you're familiar with their plans, but that was always about that. What attracted me in that was to be on a journey, on a course with peers, reading a prompt, reflecting on it, answering it, and then looking what peers have been doing. Give them feedback. They give you feedback. That's the interaction. That's where the aha moments come. Super, super way of learning that you indeed don't get from the normal education. 
fun. So I mean, yeah, good that you mentioned platforms like Coursera and the likes of those. Because how do you believe it's different? I wrote a book, The Remarkable Effect, and Remarkable Software Companies, trade number three is they aim to be different, not just better. So what have you done in order to make your platform different in order to also kind of achieve a different the different outcome that you're aiming for? Yes, yeah, so it's a great question again. So, you know, Coursera, edX, the innovation that started happening about 10 years or so back was this whole advancement of MOOCs, which is yeah. massive online courses. Exactly. So what Coursera did and edX did and there are other companies that have done is they've gone to these universities, taken their content and made it available to millions of learners at no cost. So if you want to take a course in Coursera, I think starting point is very, very low. Like It's much, much lower than going, in, going to Harvard and try to take a degree or a certification there. Sure. So I think the democratization of information and kind of the you know, making it available to millions of people around the world is where I think Coursera's of the world had a huge impact when they started. And Absolutely. of course, now, as you can imagine, you know, companies have evolved and now they're catering to companies. They have a B2B business. They have actual degree programs that they're offering, just like universities through their Coursera platforms and things like that. So I think the way we see are different from, let's say, the Coursera's of the world is we are focused on the learning experience part of things. So what Yellowdig does, and we work with about you know 150 or so universities in the US and some other parts of the world, where our platform gets licensed by the school and used in delivering their courses and programs at a higher level. And you know we are also working with Coursera's of the world. We do not work with Coursera per se, but we work with companies like Coursera, which are also offering yeah. these online courses. So Yellowdig, what Yellowdig does is that it adds that flavor into any learning environment. Doesn't matter it's a high school class or at a university class or in a corporate training class, adding Yellowdig makes it, you know, community-based right away and makes it peer-driven. And we have best practices built into the platform. We have lots of gameful learning built into the platform to get the students excited in terms of what they're learning. We try to make the content. The content comes from the instructors. We never provide the content in our platform, but we enable it in a way so that the students actually bring in content into the platform through all sorts of things that they're reading in the popular press or maybe projects they're working on. They share those content into our platform, get feedback from their peers, get feedback from the instructors. They build onto each other's knowledge. So we provide that environment where they can bring in content from anywhere and actually have an engaging experience. Let me make a small interruption here. Shinark just made an excellent remark about the secrets that drive their momentum. They take something that's already established and adopted and then amplify its value to make it remarkable. They don't create content in a new way, they enable it to be consumed in a different way. And by doing so, engagement goes up, true learning happens, and it becomes more fun. It's a trade remarkable software companies master. They focus on the essence and then create new value possibilities. And this turns customers into fans. And you can master these traits as well. And the first step, simply read my book. I've made the electronic version available for free. Just visit theremarkableeffect.com to grab your copy and inspiration will spark in the next 10 minutes. Back to the interview. Okay, by the word of it, it's a platform. Very good. So seven years down the road, 2015 started, 2022 right now, you sparked, I mean, the idea sparked, you started the business. What I'm always interested is in, in like, where do you start in? How do you, what was, I mean, yeah, how do you say that? What choice did you particularly make yeah, to not reinvent the wheel again? 
but to create something that builds differentiation power from the start? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, you know, seven years, I've made all sorts of mistakes that I one can make, you know, so kind of as, learning as by everyone. making mistakes is what it is. And, you know, as one thing about being an entrepreneur is that there's no receipt for success. No. You know, there's no playbook. Like I know there are really good playbooks and good books out there, which I mean, I love to read and get, get ideas from, but there is no one formula that works for anybody. So, it's a matter of trying a lot of things and probably not making the big mistakes to lose the company in the process, but trying to limit those mistakes in a point so that one can learn from it quickly, as quickly yeah. as possible and move on. So I think that's the framework that I use. The other framework that I like is, you know, what I try to implement is the risk mitigation framework, which is when you're starting a company, you know, all you have is an idea, maybe a problem that you're trying to solve. Now, the question becomes, okay, you want to build a business out of it, let's say five years, 10 years, whatever time it takes, but there are many, many things to solve or many, many risks to reduce. What's the most important risk that you have to solve for to believe that there is something here, right? So for me, for example, when we started with Yellowdig, the biggest thing for us firstly was that can we really solve the problem of engagement with a product? Like social learning. That was the idea, right? Create a community and and see if students actually engage with one another. And why would they want to engage? Because human behavior is interesting, right? I mean, even though you have a platform, doesn't mean they're going to actually use it. That's a big assumption. So first two or three years, we spent essentially doing a lots of pilots and trying to understand the problem and trying to understand the various facets of the problem, the different stakeholders in that problem, like the students, the instructors, the administrators, you know, fundamentally, if the assumptions we were making in terms of building the product were right or wrong, that took a time. And, you know, one thing I'll also say here is that every business is different in some sense, because if you are solving a problem, which is unique and difficult, and difficulty often is, you know, more related to human behavior because that's very unpredictable than features and functionality, which is very predictable. And if you want to change that behavior, you know, those kind of businesses are heavily reliant on the product in the beginning. The product is not right. Doesn't matter. You have the best marketing, best sales, best customer service. It's just not going to work. On the other hand, you may have businesses where you do not have a product risk, right? You may have something, you might have identified an opportunity where, you already have a product that's working and you already see that working. So all you're going to do is to connect the dots, right? Maybe you take one piece of one product, another piece of another product, do the integration and go to the customers, provide the solution. So there, I think the key becomes like sales and marketing, right? Can you really sell that joint product? So what I would say is every business is different. For Yellowdick particularly, the product was the biggest risk when I started. Okay. So Initially, it was all product for the first three years. And we made plenty of mistakes, by the way. We actually rebuilt the product three years down the line because we realized that some of the things we were building was not right and we had to rebuild it to kind of fix them. A couple of questions on that because I mean, I like the openness that you're providing here. Risk mitigation framework, what is the biggest risk to solve first? Did you go for solving some smaller risk or did you immediately go for like the big one, do the hard thing first? Always do the hard thing first. You know, that is my philosophy because doing the small thing first and trying to solving them and actually feeling good about it doesn't mean that you're going to be successful. So, you know, hardest thing is the hard things. And yeah, so that's kind of what it is. And, you know, as I said, user behavior, especially for these kind of products are very, very hard. So I think that is 
focusing there and solving that first is probably a good idea. Yeah. Second question, then, is this where we started earlier on around, okay, you're on a mission. And of course, you can be passionate about something and trying to solve something in the world, but it needs to run a business as well. At what point did you start to see the connection between, okay, it's a valuable problem to solve, and there is a very high likelihood or proof point that customers are prepared to pay premium for this or prepared to pay for this, whatever the amount is? Yeah, so it's a great question again. So in terms of proof point, you know, we were looking for champions. Like, for example, you know, it's a new product in the market and not everybody will appreciate it right away. It also requires some changes in how professors teach using a platform yeah. like this. But what we started seeing is that there were some users who were absolutely in love with the product. And that was a key thing because we could realize that even though a vast majority of them who are just using the product is still not in love with it, they're using it, they like it, but there is a group of people who are absolutely fascinated by using it. And they basically told us that they would not even teach again if they did not have Yellowdig in the next course. That was very, very, very helpful to hear at that point because we knew that if we solve for that group of users, we will have a lot of champions, right? Who are going to help us promote the product in the future exactly. in the learning. So that was in number one. But your question, like, you know, from a business standpoint, I think the question came down to, okay, who's going to pay for it and why? Because, you know, a lot of the times, especially in education too, and I think it is works in many other industries, the user is not the buyer. No, true. Right? So in an institution, the professors or the students or the users, but the buying decision is happening at a higher level where they're allocating budgets and various things. So we had to identify, okay, what is the selling point to the buyers? And we found that if they use our platform, they were able to retain their students more, which is you know a popular problem in the US is yep. almost like you know one third of the students never finish courses, programs, they drop out for a variety of reasons, and we were able to keep them in our platform because they were engaged. So we took those numbers and took to those administrators and they could do the math saying that, okay, if I'm saving one third of our students and the tuition is pretty high. So you can imagine if you save two students or three students, it pays for itself. Exactly. That definitely kind of, once we saw those numbers, we started to realize that there is a real business here. That's good. Yeah, that's indeed a real problem. And sometimes these things are so far apart that you try to, you think you're solving this and this is where the value is, but the value is at a totally different level. I've seen companies fail on exactly that, you know, that I didn't get to the point where they really could prove or didn't even think about like the higher aspiration or the problem that was further down the road. That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware, when your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dotcom The Hacking, a new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for Dotcom, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe. Another thing that intrigued me from what you were saying is that, you know, of course you tried a lot and certain things worked, certain things failed. Then after three years time, you decide to rebuild your whole platform. I've been in the, in the enterprise software industry all my life. You build and you build and all the hard work goes in and all the blood and the sweat and so goes in. So I know by default, it's often very hard to give up on something because it's your baby. So what made you decide, okay, this is not a something that we can fix 
by, by building around it or something that we really had to kind of pivot or now we have to rebuild this yeah so, because it's so lot, there's a lot of sunk cost here it's a big sunk cost and as you were pointing out it wasn't an easy decision for us to you know really forego the investment we made in the platform for over three years and rebuild the whole platform that took us another two years to kind of actually that kind of we spend and lost you can say we lost some time as part of that yeah, process true. but the equation was the following which is the good thing that happened in the first product that we built was that we truly tried we understood what really works from a user behavior standpoint, what users were liking or not liking and what the administrators were looking for from a buyer standpoint, the kind of security and other integration points we had to build in the platform and what's that overall vision needs to look like for it to be everywhere, right? So in the first three years, we got faculties from various institutions adopting us and using us and giving us feedback. And they were saying there were champions coming. But then we were imagining the next level, which is, okay, now this is going to be an enterprise system for the entire university, which is going to drive that entire engagement. So that also required a different level of integration points, different level of security, you know, stability of the platform and visibility around the data and things like that, that the platform that we had at that time could not really scale. We could, right? You know, we could put lots of bandages around it and make it work for like maybe a year or two, but it'll fail eventually. I knew I saw that. And the vision was always to build a long-term company. You know, I did not want to build something which is, you know, eventually we know, you know, it's going to fail and maybe we sell to somebody before it fails. And that strategy we didn't want to get into. So, so it was a hard conversation with our investors and whatnot. And, you know, we decided, okay, we are going to rebuild the whole thing and which we did. We launched in 20. 19 actually right before the pandemic but you know glad we did it because now the growth that we have seen in this platform we would have never got it in the previous platform yeah and you're talking about the pandemic got a couple of questions on that as well but before that what do you believe in this whole in all the things that you've seen and tried what has been the hardest nut to crack hardest nut okay so (laughs) (laughs) it's a very complicated question okay so there are two sides to it by the way I'll, Uh i'll kind of say there are two big things one is the business and there are difficult things that we had to crack in the business. And then there is being an entrepreneur is also a very difficult thing, especially, you know, if you're starting for the first time, you know, second time, I I think people know about themselves a lot more. So on the business side, I think the biggest thing was, you know, truly kind of understanding the nature of the problem and truly understanding how the product can solve it. So I think the nut was to truly understand the problem better. We can get into that because, you know, we made a lot of assumptions in the beginning saying, this is what I think the market needs. And we build it and we said, no, that's not truly what we are solving for. Maybe this is something what we solve for. And we went through lots of iterations. And the other thing I'll say is the team, you know, like in the beginning, it was only me and maybe some other people around me, but then, I was, I would say, lucky to a large extent that we found the right people. We won't be here today unless we had those people who were equally passionate about the problem and kind of helped me. So those two things, I would say I had two answers. Very hard to find the right people and very hard to understand the nature of the problem. On the personal side, as an entrepreneur, you know, just being comfortable with, you know, kind of making lots of mistakes and recovering from it very, very quickly, and which wasn't easy. I mean, I was one of those guys, you know, went to the right schools, had the right jobs and always went up and never, you know, had a bad day in my career because it was so predictable. And as an entrepreneur, it's not predictable at all. So exactly. I think getting used to it was something else. Yeah. 
I went kind of digging into the part about the problem because that is something that I see all the time. You know, people think that they understand what the problem is they're solving, and it's hardly ever correct. So, when did you feel that you nailed it in terms of how you describe it and how you build for it? Yeah. So, to be very, very honest, we are still learning. So, okay. you know, we are still unpacking new things about the problem. And the way I find it out is that, you know, we do these bi-weekly or once a month webinars with our customers where we invite one of the institutions or faculties or a group of faculties, and we ask them lots of questions about their experience with our platform. And I listen to those webcasts, even I'm doing it, so I do it or our team is doing it and listen to them. And I always find that they said something in that webinar that I've never heard before. I'm like, okay, that's new. And I never thought that they think like this, right? So as a result, we're always learning, but hopefully, you know, there's less and less things that are new to us. We've heard something again and again. So that's kind of, that happens more so, but there's always something new. So I think where we started to understand the problem better is when we were having more and more dialogue with our users. And I think, as I said, the biggest indication for me was personally that when we had champions, and it's not that we had thousands of instructors who came to us and said they love us. There would be like a handful, like six people will say that I love it so much that I do not want to teach without having yellow dig again. Or we will have students come to us and they will say that, you know what? I've told my other instructors or other professors who are not using yellow dig to use yellow dig. That was another one. The third thing that we started to see was typically at the end of the course, there is a course evaluation that is done where students are asked questions and they are asked to rank things that are important for them or what was good about the course, what was bad about the course. And Yellowdick started ranked pretty high. Like, you know, we will get service back from our instructors. Sometimes they will share with us, not always, but sometimes they will share with us. They'll say, hey, you know what? Yellowdick came up at the top or it was number two or number three. And they were happy about it, right? And sure. we could see that the students are also liking it. So I think those were the things when I was truly started to build confidence, like, okay, if we stay on course and build for those champions, I think we can have something which is, you know, yeah. really special. From the champions, they will find, they will find, well, they talk to their peers and you'll find the others and it becomes exactly. like a big family. Now, it's a very good sign, of course, when people say, okay, I don't want to teach or I don't want to learn without this anymore. It's the classic kind of proof point of product market fit. You know, when you go to a customer and say, okay, I take it away and they start screaming. <laughs> and if that's not we, the case, we, oh yeah, exactly, we have you, it. But... I'll tell you, I'll do a wonderful story about one customer. I won't name it. It's a big university in the US. And about two years back, we were, you know, of course, when a customer adopts us, they try different products. So they had Yellowdig and they had two or three other products they were piloting, you know, in various parts of the university. And of course, they were getting mixed results, right? Because sometimes what happens is that you have a few champions, but they may not always listen to the champions, right? They may listen to like do a general survey or, you know, kind of their, their perceptions of the usage or whatnot. And they told us saying that, look, there are two other products and you have yellow dig and maybe, you know what, it's good, but we have options. So when we are negotiating price, this is what the price we can pay. And this is what we do. And this is what it is. And this is the lowest we have got from one of the vendors. And you guys are not that different. Oh. And you know, of course, we were not very happy with it, right? So we were, our answer is, look, we have no option. So we will accept whatever you say. Two years down, slowly the word gets out. And this is something naturally happened. We just entered into a long-term contract with them where we found that there are more and more users who are coming up 
and who are liking what they're seeing and they really want to work with us now. So I think the perception changes. And I think one of the things that we have to do as entrepreneurs is to be patient because even though we want that, okay, we have the best product in the best mousetrap and everybody is going to love us in day one, it just doesn't happen unless we are super lucky. Typically it takes a little while for the market to pick up. And we definitely have seen that in the last two, three years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, of course, when it's not around, people have to get used to kind of the different way. But once they've been involved in it, like it's hard to unthink it anymore. I see the same thing for the experience that I've been through in a couple of those, those situations. Interesting and inspiring. The real problem. So yeah, talking about pandemic then, you came to market in 2019. And then yeah, shortly after that, I'm not sure whether it was in 2019, but like within a year, pandemic starts. What happened then? I mean, the reason I'm asking and I want to get some anecdotes is I'm writing my second book, which is about themed remarkable resilience. And I'm always looking for the stories that are about not only bouncing back, but actually coming stronger out of it. What is your story? Yeah. So pandemic actually, interestingly, so we launched the product right before the pandemic. I think it was like Q3 or Q4 of 2019. And the pandemic hit in like April or March of 2020. It was a very mixed time for the first six months because we had a product in the market. We already was getting early adoption from schools and getting early feedback, you know, because it's a new product in the market, even though we understand it better, but still it's a new thing. Everybody has to try it and feel comfortable. And primarily we were selling what we will call B2B at that time, which is we will go to the administration of the school, like a dean or associate dean or a director of online learning, and we will sell to them and they will decide to how to pilot it in which faculties and they will kind of scale from there. So that was our sales process. But at the beginning of the pandemic, if you remember, like the whole world came to stop, like Mm -hmm. nobody's speaking of anybody's phone. Everybody's trying to see what they have in their toolkit. There's no new tools, like whatever is available. If it's Zoom, it's Zoom. That's it. The whole university is going to go on Zoom, even though there is a better tool available, but you'll still won't touch exactly. it. There's a big but risk. From that perspective, right? they're really risk averse. Extremely risk averse. So for us, our B2B completely tanked, like in March, April, no phone calls. Nobody will even re- respond. So we changed, decided to change our business model at that time very quickly, where we said that we are going to give the product away for free for a certain period of time for users. So every user can use us for free for a certain period of time. And the faculties can directly come to us and sign up with us at that point. So, and what happened was this interesting, which is a lot of faculties that time, they were getting into Zoom and things like that, but they were looking for other things. Not all faculties, but a lot of the innovative ones. Like they would say, you know what? I want more than that, right? So, and we started appealing to them. And we had pretty good signups and we went through these various publications. They pushed us our messaging and we got very good signups. And we started to, we told them that, okay, you can buy right after the first semester of use. So if you use for free for one semester after that, you can buy. And we saw a very good conversion rate actually by the, towards the end of 2020, we said, you know what, this is not bad. Maybe we can just grow a business completely B2B to C. We call it like, you know, we just don't have to talk to the administrators. We'll go directly to faculties and grow the business like that. We did that in 2020, 2021, we were doing that. And towards the end of 2021, against the switch flipped and a lot of administrators started looking for solutions, which are proven that they can actually now start to scale for the entire institution. So we went back and now our sales is like B2B2C, which is we always make it available to instructors, whoever wants to use it, but then we talk to the administrators to make it available. So yeah, so pandemic 
We had maybe a dozen customers in March of 2020 in this new platform. I think then by the end of 2021, we all had crossed 100 universities because a lot of yeah. them came through this free pilots, then became customers. Exactly. But that is, again, the bottom-up approach and where the users that you impact most anyway start to love it and start to kind of push the internals. I've heard a couple of stories around it recently also in one of my CEO masterminds, whereby sometimes that goes up to, well, they end up in big corporations with more than a thousand users until like the kind of the central administration starts to kind of work with them. And also it becomes a problem with, because of like all the administrative hassle because of invoicing every single individual. <laughs> That's right. Um, that exactly. I mean, it's not a scalable model after a certain point, but definitely it helped. And this model has worked like Yammer and a lot of companies in the, exactly. in the corporate side has done this. I think this is probably a model that you know we like too. Yeah, exactly. It's very interesting what you can do with business models in order to get traction and to keep that, to accelerate it. And even in times of yeah uncertainty, so, I mean, I had a question around sales. I think we talked about that. Oh, no, no. One more question around sales, but then particularly in the area of like the enterprise side of it. What have you learned in the meantime in selling to these large universities in order to control the sales process and not make it drag like they typically do? Yeah. So, you know, the higher education sales process, as you're pointing out, is kind of known. Enterprise sales takes a long time. In general, yeah. higher education is probably longer than that because exactly. it's, it's a decision by committee and Many other things they have, state regulations they have to comply with, there are data regulations that they have to comply with and things like that. You know, we disintegrate. Like our strategy is that go to the users directly, make them successful, and then find a buyer right from there. So we are, you know, we sign contracts, you know, with a school, with a program, with a campus, and or with the institution. You know, so we have very flexible ways of signing contracts where... There's only not one way. So if they want to buy Yaldig and they have a certain budget and a certain budget owner, they can we sign a contract with them. And over time, we scale those contracts to go from, let's say, a school to a campus to university. Exactly. So go in small and then start scaling rapidly from there. Yeah, very common model and proven one. But of course, when you're, when you're talking about the sales organization and the people that are in sales, they always want to go for the big contracts. They have to be patient. I think that's the word patient again, coming back. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I talked already about my book, The Remarkable Effect. You've started your own company right now. I'm not sure whether you've started the company before. I think you said yes on that. What do you believe are traits that are essential for your company to make it, you know, to enable it to become a company that people start talking about and keep talking about? Yeah, so it's a great question. I think, you know, like for people to start talking about and keep talking about is the value that we deliver to our users and our customers. You know, I always believe that we are living in an era where, you know, 10, 15 years back, software companies were very much sales driven. So the salespeople will go in and they will sell a product and right at the renewal time, they'll show up again and they will do anything to kind of renew the contract. Sometimes those do not create enough value surplus for people to talk about it. So I think we are in an era now where the value has to be the primary driver and the salespeople kind of follow up to kind of drive the value. I think that's number one. The other thing I'm also seeing is we also talk about is that outcomes, you know, like for example, a lot of the times in the past SaaS was, especially in software was sold as, you know, like efficiency improvement. Sometimes, you know, people will quantify those values, but it was almost like, okay, this is the price per user and this is how you use it. But I think increasingly customers are looking for what is the value that I'm getting 
out of using this platform, kind of of quantifying that as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. That's becoming pretty big as well. I think that's important for companies to kind of get to that scale that you're talking about that everybody talks about. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're applied to kind of already trade number two in my book, remarkable software companies offer something valuable and desirable. And I think the desirable part was already coming through that, yeah, your users just fall in love with it and can't use, can't work without it. Completely agree on the outcomes part. Kind of connecting that to your pricing model. Have you done anything specific to your pricing model to kind of make it be led by outcomes rather than a price per user? Yeah. So our standard pricing is when they are faculty studying with us is that per student per course. Yeah. And so that, you know, when they are faculty starts using it, they are not giving commitment to all their courses or whatever they're teaching. They're just teaching it for one course and we price like that. When we go to an institutional adoption where they are designing it to kind of scale at a higher level, often companies in this space have done pricing per FTE, which is they will give them one price for the entire student body and they sign up. So you can imagine year one, the usage might be very low, but they're paying for the entire body. But even the pricing is low, that's the whole idea. And eventually you think that eventually that is going to you know get to FTE levels. Our pricing there is essentially based on use. So we kind of work with the clients to say, okay, how many students do you think is going to use, you're going to roll it out to, because they have the right to roll it out to so many students. And we will give them a price for that. And there will be a pricing ladder. And next year, as you expand your usage, you get more. But if you contract for whatever reason, it's not working, you don't have to pay, then you can reduce it. So we are trying to come up with a business model and pricing model, which is more tied to the usage of the platform as opposed to... uh, Usage being a sign of there's value. There's value, exactly. Yeah, exactly. All right, very good. Let me see where you said something else that popped up and that's kind of flying away from me right now. Yeah, looking at the timing here already, based on your entrepreneurial journey, what would be a do and or a don't that you would yeah, like to kind of to give to other to PR CEOs, to people that aspire to start a SaaS business? What are the kind of those advices that you would love to have known before? That you can now share? Yeah, so it was a great question. I would say if you're starting a company, always think about what's the motivation of starting a company, you know, because company building is always hard, especially the first one. So you have to be prepared and have the right motivation and the right reasons to build a company. And if you are, let's say, starting with a problem, you know, try to understand the problem as deeply as possible. You know, talking to people does not cost money. Building products and rebuilding products cost a lot of money. So, so talk to as many people as possible. You know, have your own point of view, but definitely talk to at least 50 to 100 people before yeah, starting exactly. anything. I think that's the biggest thing. And then, you know, be resilient. You know, the biggest thing about building a company is not running out of money as a CEO. So be very cautious about how you spend your money and who you hire and how fast you fire. If somebody's not working out, you know, that's kind of very critical. There's a hard part to kind of, you know, being having emotional control is important to be able to go through that journey ups and downs, prepare yourself, you know, physically, mentally to be able to do that, which is important and, you know, hiring the best people possible. So, and treating them as well as possible. So that's another thing that definitely is quite important to kind of build that company. And yeah, I mean, you know, and failing by learning. I mean, you know, small failures. I mean, there's no playbook. I mean, I don't believe that there are any formula that I can tell today it's going to work. So it's always about making small mistakes, not the big ones and learning from it as quickly as possible. And then trying to go for the big ones and having a plan around it. Yeah. One thing that triggered me when you were saying, okay, 
the kind of the objective for the CFO is, of course, not to run out of money, not to run out of runway. Now, one approach is to be super risk averse, super low on you know the cost that you spend, and kind of throwing every dime up and down and <laughs> really a noodle on that. The other approach is, of course, yeah, being more opportunistic while being you know, figure out dealing with okay that cash flow will come in. What have you learned in the period of the pandemic to ensure you didn't run out of money? Yeah. So, you know, as you said, I see that there are two extremes, which is one is being very pessimistic. Exactly. And the other extreme is being very optimistic. I think the right medium, I, I would say, is being realistic. So I think it's very important to be a realistic person to be able to pull through. I'm, I'm optimistic about various things I do, and I start small projects. When I'm starting something, let's say a new idea in a marketing domain, you know, we always start small. We come up with the idea, we flesh it out, and we find out what, what's the smallest thing I can do, smallest investment behind it to see how it works. Yeah. And if I'm not getting the results, I would say, okay, let me put a little more resources behind it, but always understanding what's not working. I think the people get into trouble when they put resources without completely understanding what's working, not working. Exactly. And it doesn't take too much of resources to that. So I think that is what I do. We are always trying new things, but being very cautious about it. And then if something is not working, just being realistic that this is not going to work and, you know, let's move on. But at the same time, you know, I think having patience is important. It's also not, you know, I give it like, let's say a month, you know, if I feel I'm going to see a results in a month, I probably will give them three months. Then I'll see for three months. And, you know, even though we are losing a little bit of money there, but it's fine. Yeah. Because we are looking at it, maybe delay some other expenses for a couple of months and then get there. So it takes that. I mean, you know, where I think people get a little bit in trouble when they are too anxious about seeing results too quickly, which never happens. So it's a long journey. I mean, you know, you can't control the timeline, honestly. I mean, this is something about entrepreneurship. Like it might go very fast, very slow, but you always have to have that patience at every moment to be able to pull it off. Well said. I love those last lines and piece of advice as well. Well, thank you very much for this, Shanak. Love the openness that you've provided. Of course, yeah, kudos and thumbs up for the mission that you're on because this is needed and the world needs this as we evolve into a world that's much more offline or at least, no, no, maybe it's online. It's not face-to-face anymore. But I also value it in terms of how you approach the business is that you measure your success by the value that you help your customers create rather than you know, what you want, that you want to build a business that's going to be valued at a billion dollars at, at some point in time, and you want to have an exit. I think that will allow you to come along, farther along, build something for that's sustainable and possibly grow even bigger than you could have hoped for in, in the other way around. Thanks for this, and yeah, good luck on the rest part of the journey. Yeah, no, thank you, Don. Appreciate the invite and truly enjoyed this conversation. So thank you. Thank you very much, and it was a pleasure to speak to you. And this ends my conversation with Shunak, and I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on the mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Shanak Roy, founder and CEO of Yellow Day. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission, 
that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business, when you need it, from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.